Hello ladies and gents and welcome to the next Q&A in the Fulham Focus series. My name is Danny Boyer and recently I was joined by former defender Terry Angus to speak about his time at the club. Terry was a true gentleman throughout and went into so much detail that we've decided to cut the Q&A into two parts to make this easier for you guys to listen to. As well as cutting it into two parts, we've decided to edit it to include the best parts because this conversation literally went on for hours. But I'm not knocking it. I loved every minute of it, and I'm sure you will too. So without further ado, here's part one with Terry Angus. So your first club was VS Rugby. Um, First of all, who are they? Because I would imagine not many people have heard of them in London. And um, how did you get the opportunity to turn professional with Northampton from them? Right, see, great question. Uh, VS Rugby is local. At the time, they were... They would, they'd be the equivalent of what would now be something like, um, let's see, Southern Premier, Southern Premier, or in, yeah, it'd be, it'd be about the equivalent, it'd be about two below conference. That's what they were so, then. So would it be like Village Hamlet? Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, you, you're looking at two below the conference. So your Ryman's, it would be like your Ryman's prep. Yeah, yeah, okay. Right? Yeah. So, because that's near Coventry, I was playing kind of local stuff in Coventry. And then they came in. In fact, Jimmy Knox was a manager whose brother is Archie Knox, who was the assistant at the time of Alex Ferguson. Useless information, but there you go. (laughs) Um, So, I just went over, and they had some top, top non-league players, honestly top non-league players who were well-known around our Coventry and Warwickshire area. So I went and played for them. Good side. We were a good side. We started progressing well, started to do well. I was there for maybe two years. Played against the likes of Ian Dowie, yeah. um, John Beresford, uh, also, no, not Beresford, what's his name? Fullback, blonde hair, played at Newcastle, right back. Oh, Warren Barton, is it? No, Warren Barton, Warren, yes. He play, yeah, played against a lot of lads who then went on to make a career. So it was VS Rugby, done well, and then it it just it was just time then I moved on, and that's when I went to Northampton. So what, did Northampton, like, scout you from them then? No, what, what happened, mad, mad story. Um, I was playing against teams like Dartford, so Peter Taylor, Andy Hesson Tyler, all that kind of lot. And I played against a lad, Theo Foley's brother, uh, son, called Adrian. And he played for Dartford. Or Dar- yeah, I think he played for Dartford. Dartford's my Theo- one of my local clubs. Is it? Yeah. yeah, yeah so- I live in Bexley Heath, so... Oh, right, of course it's then, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So- well, you didn't support in Fulham if you live in Bexley. Anyway, well, my, my, my granddad's from Battersea. So oh, that explains yeah. it. What had happened then, um, Theo, Foley, Theo Foley was then took over at uh, Fulham, right? No, took over at Northampton. And he said to his son, look, I need a centre-back. And his son went, there's a guy who plays at VS Rugby. He might do a job for you. And at the time, to be fair, I was 20, 24. And I'd said to myself, 
this was going to be my last opportunity to try and make it a pro. So Adrian, bless him, Adrian Foley told his dad, Theo then got in touch with VS Rugby and said, look, can he come over for week, two week trial? And I just, because it's not far from my house, it's 45 minutes from my house. I'm 24, I thought, go on then. You know, and I'm working at Persia on the track at the time, by the way. Um, so I just thought, go, go for it. And the week's done a week of the two weeks. And he said, look, we want to sign you and I'll give you a two-year deal. And that's where it started. Went back into Peugeot, told them I was leaving and uh, started my road in 1990, July 1990, in professional football when you were two. It's just, it's just ma- amazing, like, how it all falls falls into place. It's, it's, it, it really does feel like fate because... Yeah. It does, doesn't it? That you you yeah. destined to be a footballer. The way it all falls into place, it was just like a coincidence kind of thing. Well, the, the, the strangest story around that, just before that, um, Mark Lawrenson, if I remember rightly, was manager at Peterborough, and there was word that he wanted to sign me, right? And also, Peter Taylor and Andy Hessen Tyler, who I used to have some right good battles with them. And I used to always do well against them. They were, they were Dartford. They took over at Watford and they went, we want that Terry Angus. So what was going to happen? David Holdsworth was centre back at Watford. He was going to go to West Ham for big money. And they were going to get me to take his place because they knew what I could do. As it happens, just before David Holdsworth went, David Holdsworth damages his knee. His move to West Ham doesn't take place. They don't sign me for Watford. So that's how it goes. So hi, hi. How, how did you get the move to Fulham then? Well, the move to Fulham come about because I was at Northampton then for three years and that was, don't ever... You know the myth about footballers' life was great and everything was brilliant and rosy? That was the total opposite of Northampton. So I spent three years at Northampton, two under Theo, a lot of time not getting paid. It was just it was just shambles. It was shambles. And Theo then got sacked. He then become youth team manager at Fulham with people like Michael Myson, Hampshire, Boz, all them boys, um, Rob Aworth, Danny Bowl, all them. He was their youth team manager. Don Mackay says, I need a centre-half. Theo says, I know, lad's just been released at Northampton, Terry Angus. So that's how I got to Fulham. Don Mackay rings me up, says, I spoke to Theo Furley, do you want to come and have a chat? Went and, went and had a chat with him, and he said, oh, I'll offer you two years. So obviously, you'd had that conversation with Theo, obviously, and Theo said, yeah, you can do the job. And that's how I got to Fulham. So I've been released from Northampton by a, future, a previous manager, Phil Chard. Another story. Don't like him, but that's another story. And I then went and signed for Fulham in the summer, summer of 93. And, and how did you find Don McCoy at first? Was, was I, right? I, listen... Don Mackay's fine. With me, I, I, I would not have a 
bad social word to say about Don Mackay. It's just that he managed a football club at the time that was just, it was just tugging along, really. Do you know what I mean? It, yeah. it was, if, if you put it in a road analogy, you're a bus driver. I'll tell you what, I'll put it in an analogy for a bus driver. He, he was a bus driver driving down very tight country lanes and not getting anywhere very quickly. While most of the other clubs around London and around the country were mm. driving on dual carriageways. But is that is that his fault or was it just the situation um, the club was in at Great question. Great question. I think some was down to his naivety, um, not being able. He he was a nice bloke. He was just a nice bloke to me. He was a nice bloke. Didn't have enough strength of character. And on top of that, there was players in that squad who were a disgrace. Okay. Do you know what I mean? They, they, they were a disgrace because we won't they took name liberties. Names. <laughs> 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 there was players in that. They were a disgrace, and he wasn't strong enough to be able to manage them. And you'll see why when I talk later on about other things. Yeah. But he wasn't strong enough to manage them. And then he had an assistant manager who was a very, very good coach, but wasn't really pulling in the same direction as him. So I've come into a football club. I've come from one football club that was a shambles. I've come to another one that was marginally better. And I'm going, is this what pro football's around? Bearing in mind now, I'm like 26, 27. And I'm going, is this what it's all about? And the problem of Fulham when I arrived, you had three camps right three camps within and you can call them clips or whatever you want within one squad so you had the what I called the Surrey boys right they were all one they didn't get on with like the Essex the Essex crew who used to come in in one car Mm. and there was a few in there and then there was like a third group People like, and I'll name them, people like me, uh, Mark Cooper, Sean Farrell, um, Julian Hales. We were were like the third group, and we got on with all of them. We got on with everybody. But because you had this Surrey group who thought they kind of dominated it, and you had the Essex group who were typical, if I say to you, East London, you know, Essex, give it all that. Mm. It was very difficult and everybody damn weren't pulling in the same direction. And I'm coming from a non-league background where I'm of the belief, look, we're a team, we're all pulled together. So it, it made things difficult. It, it did make it difficult. And we were always on a loser considering the financial restraints of the club as well, which was a shame. Yeah, I, I suppose that that you're 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 bouncing on nicely to the next question actually because obviously, born in Coventry, play for the two Midlands clubs, um, and then you moved to to Fulham and London. Like, so how how did you settle into London life? You know, did all this going on at the club make it make it harder? Well, it's funny how you say settled into London life. You're going to be surprised what I say to you now. I didn't move. I stayed in Coventry, and. And I travelled, you can ask me any question you want about the M40 motorway and I'll be able to answer it. 
right? And I travelled every day. So I would travel on a Monday, Tuesday. We'd usually have Wednesdays off. I'd travel on a Thursday, and I'd, if it's a home game, I'd stay at my aunt's house in Shepherd's Bush on a Friday. And in the latter years, I would stay at um, my wife's uncle's on the Friday in Surrey. So I kind of travelled. So there was... We had a little school going, me, Julian Hales, Sean Farrell, Mark Mark Cooper. We had a little car going. Then it went to, I met Udo Onware and then Paul Kelly. And a few of us used to travel in. A lot of times I travelled on my own as well. So settling into London life, it was never a problem because I don't have a problem settling. And I had... I've been to London loads of times. I had relatives in Wembley who I used to visit from a very young age. What what really got me, rather than settling into that London life, Dan, it was more about understanding why all these blokes had what is undoubtedly the best job going ever. And some of them wouldn't try. Honestly, they would not try. They, they, and, I, I couldn't get my head around that because I'd worked in a factory for four or five years. I'd worked in doing van driving and all this. And I come from a non-league background where I'm going, hold on, you like don't realise how lucky you are, but yet still you're tossing it off because you're in a mood because you can't play in your favourite position or because you just take it for granted. So that's what, I couldn't really get my head round. And so the transition wasn't more about living in London. The transition was more about understanding people and seeing that I looked at it as a privilege. Some people looked at it as a job. Mm, yeah, yeah. And uh, so, so if you were doing all that travelling, I'm just I'm just thinking I, I drive for a living and it drives me mad. <laughs> like, so, so what was your day-to-day... Schedule. So you'd get right. up at what time? Uh, yeah, I'll tell, I'll tell you. I can remember it. I remember it. I used to, Monday, at the time as well, by the way, and this is relevant, they were redoing the M25. So yeah. they were putting the fourth lane on the M25 all the way on the um, Heathrow section, all on the Surrey section. Yeah. So I would get up at about 22, half past six. I'd get up about half past six every morning, 20 to seven. Uh, and bear in mind, that wasn't a difficulty because my lad, he was, he was only about, he'd have been, what? No, in fact, he was born 94, so he wasn't into latter years. But in the early days, I'd get up about half six. I would wash and all that, make my toast. And this is how I got into eating cold toast. So I'd make toast, have some fruit, jump in the car, leave the house at quarter past seven, jump in the car, have a little drive down in my uh, Ford Escort, and off I'd go. Down the M40, M25, hit the roadworks, and I'll pull into training over at um, oh, Mottsburg. Well, it wasn't Mottsburg then, it was Epsom. Over at Epsom, I'll pull into training at about ten past ten. So on the route, I'd eat cold toast and have my drink and just relax and take it easy and hit traffic every morning. <laughs> and then every every day. And then how long would training be roughly? 
then we would train in the early days with it changed under Mickey but we would then start training about half ten we would finish around quarter past twelve we would you could have something to eat we'd have something to eat you've got to get it yourself pay for it yourself but we'd have something to eat I, because I was doing, I don't make me sound like a martyr, but because I was doing this job and I wanted to be better, I was in no rush to go back. I was thinking, you know what, Terry, you've just done two and a half hours work as opposed to doing a night shift of nine and a half hours. Mm. So I've done two and a half hours work. Then I'd go and do my sit-ups. I'd do the hopping. I might do a little bit of skipping and we had a little gym area where I'd just do some pull-ups and things like that because I had to get stronger. And I'd most probably, as long as I left the training ground for about half past three, quarter to four, I could be home for about half five, right? If I left after quarter to four, four o'clock, I wouldn't be touching home until about half six, seven. So you had to beat that rush out. So I had to get out of there. So I would most probably... In the early days I was there, and I never had, in the, in the first couple of years, I never had any close, close mates. I would be the one who would most probably be the last one of the last to leave. Because the Essex lads would be shot off. Um, a few of the boys would stay out, maybe chatting to Gary Brazil and people like that. But yeah, I'd, I'd do my stuff. I'd make sure I'd get my work done, jump in the car, um, have something to eat and then off I'd go and get myself back home. So yeah, it, it wasn't it wasn't bad because I'd still be getting home at the same time as if I'd done a shift at Persia. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. And like you do a shift. Like you yeah. do a shift. I could most probably have left my house at the same time as you. You'd go and do your shift. I'd go and do my day's football and I'd get home before you. So come on, be honest, because we're all we're all um, human here. We all um, start eyeing up the clock when it gets to home time. Did you have any like team meetings late afternoon, and you think to yourself, "Bloody, I was getting close to that um, quarter past three now." <laughs> the thing is, I can't can't rightly remember. Good question. Can't rightly remember. But I don't think we did. I don't think there was many team meetings. And the thing is, if there was, there'd be like straight after training. Because, dare I say it, and Don won't thank me for saying it, and nor will Ray Lewington, players kind of run it. <laughs> you know what I mean? They yeah. kind of, oh, we're not doing that. Why don't we do this? And the players kind of dominated Don McKay in a way, which was a shame because he what, he's a nice man. He is a nice man. And I dare say you can't really say a manager's a nice man. They shouldn't be. But he was a nice bloke. You know, you'd invite him round to your house and give him a cup of tea and a sandwich and have a pleasant chat with him. Yeah, Whereas but, you most probably wouldn't with Mickey Adams and Ian Bramford. Mm, yeah, but, but we've seen with, with Roy Hodgson, um, obviously not for England, but, but when he was at Fulham, proper gentleman, but I don't think you'd want to cross him. I don't think, you know, he had that authority about him where you knew he made the decisions and he did things his way. And I think... Uh, you know, maybe the, the the situation the club was in at the time, what they'd just come out of, you know, Jimmy Hill rescuing the club. Yeah. Maybe it was just too big a situation for for Don McCoy. I think I think you summed it up. You you summed it up there, and I and I think his his view of football and Ray Lewington's, I don't think they went hand in hand. 
because I think Ray was knew where he wanted to go. Ray was a good coach. He had great knowledge of the game. He knew what he wanted and how the game should be played. But obviously, he was the coach or the assistant manager, and Don was the man who made the decisions. And looking back now, obviously, they were, they were poles apart. So what Ray did was just kept his mouth shut, really. And I dare say, if you push Ray, most probably think, well, one day Don will get sacked and I might get the job. I don't know. Mm. But they they weren't in harmony, let's put it that way. And Ray's views on football and how it should be played and all the rest of it was different to Don. Ray's view on coaching and what should be in the session. So, yeah, it's it, it, it's one of them. I think that's a question for them too. But from the outside or from the inside looking out, I would say that Don, nice man, but not ruthless enough, not hard enough on the players, not dominant enough. Ray, good coach, but suppressed and not not wasn't allowed to express himself as a good coach, how he's proved to be. Oh, that's a good way of putting it. It's <laughs> <laughs> a very, very diplomatic way of putting it. Thank you. You seem like a close group, particularly the promotion year. Was there anyone yeah. that you didn't see eye to eye with? Right. The promotion year group, and this question's been asked to all of us, right? Yeah. Um, that promotion year group was something I don't think... I will, well, in all my football, you know, I've never experienced anything like that. I've, I've not. It's been, it, it's a group of people, men, who were, I felt, somebody might tell you different, do you know what I mean? But for mm. me, and I think I'm quite easy to get on with, right? I felt there was a togetherness there that was great. And I, I went out my, what went out my way, but I wanted to ensure that I befriended, I was friends with everyone. So some of the youth team lads who had come up, Michael Meissens of this world, Boz, um, Danny Bolt, who had come through, I really got to know them at youth team level because I spent a lot of time with them because I found them interesting. We used to chat and laugh and they used to go, why are you always hanging with us? They were good lads. So when they come up, I already had a bond with them. Now, I think to his credit, and I give Mickey credit where he deserves it. He's not my favourite man, and I dare say I'm not his favourite bloke. He built a squad, him and Ian Bramford built a squad of players who were together. Now, whether they did it subconsciously or consciously, they distanced themselves from the squad like Don Mackay didn't. Don Mackay was too close to some of the Surrey boys. So they distanced themselves to the point where they were sometimes really horrible, which brought us closer together. They ensured that that squad of players, if one person got kicked, somebody else went and backed them up. So if you look, if you look at any footage, any footage that goes on in that year where someone's kicked off on the pitch, right? Everyone's in there. Someone scores a goal, there's six or seven players around patting the lad on the head. There's lads running from the back to the front. Yeah, yeah. He, he, them two created that. They got rid of 
and it doesn't take us scientists to work out, they got rid of what I perceived as the bad eggs in that group before they arrived. So when they arrived, they looked at it and they thought, he's bad, he's bad, he's bad, no matter how good he is, he's going. And they got rid of them. And they did well by bringing in Terry Herlock. I will never have a bad word said about him, right? No chance. Because Big Fish, all the rest of it, everyone's gone rock hard, this, that, and the other. Brilliant man. Team player, brilliant man. And he, with Glenn Cockrell, Simon Morgan, moulded everybody. So you know what it's like. You've got your captain, and then you've got all your lieutenants. Terry Erlock, Glenn, Simon Morgan, Nick Cusack. Proper lieutenants, right? And we all were together. We all changed in and around the same place. We changed it so that the eating area where we had something to eat done after fucked after training was no longer a table here, a table there, a table anyway. It was big round table. Simon ensured that no one finished training and shut off. You had to come into the dining room and have something to eat. Even if it meant staying there for five minutes, but you had to come in. Now in that squad, I got on with some people, Robbie Herrera, yeah, me and him, very good friends. Danny Cullett, very good friends. Nick Cusack, very good friends. Tony Lang, remember Lang? Very good <laughs> friends with him. Right? So I got on with them. All the younger lads I got on with. There's a couple who I just thought, a Mickey Conroy, magnificent individual, honestly. But there's a couple of I thought, do you know what? I don't trust you. And that was it. I, I, I didn't trust them. And I had good reason to for what they did to me. But there was only there was only two players. There's only two players I'd look at, right? Who I would go, I don't trust you. And to this day, if I saw you to this day, I may tell you why. I might say hello. But I definitely wouldn't sit down and have a coffee with you and talk about great old times because I just thought you were sly. And if I give mm. you a clue, they were both sent to us. But anyway, um, that's that. So that's how I'm going to skirt around that question. But generally, <laughs> it was a magnificent squad of people and good men brought together by some experienced players. And Simon Morgan was the catalyst of that. Yeah. Yeah, so um, going back to that little clue, you were a centre half. <laughs> yeah, I, I like myself. <laughs> everyone, everyone, everyone loves Terry put Angus, don't worry about it. Put it this way, right? Put it this way. The centre half, the centre half at the time were me, Nick Cusack, Danny Cullip, yeah, Mark, Mark Blake, and yeah. Simon Stewart. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're an idiot. <laughs> oh, that's a great clue, though, are you? Right. And if I tell you this, if I tell you this, uh, one, one of that group, I've just told you, used to travel in with Mickey Adams. Right, so that okay. means he used to play down at Southampton. And another one of that group never played a game or played one game. So that, that tells you. Yeah, yeah. Um, who, who is You're it, 
Right, I think, I think, um, I think we should move on. Yeah, I think we should as well. Yeah, Next but, but you know what? You, you asked me to ask questions out of the norm, and that's why I asked that question about seeing eye to eye with players because good. I thought no one's going to ask him that because it's so it was so clear. Even even at such a young age, you know, I said I was about eight, nine. Even to me, it just all I remember is what a close group you were. How we were. how happy you all seemed together. We were we were a close group. Seriously, we. You know, I'll, I'll give you a ridiculous, ridiculous little story. Right, you know the year Mickey Conroy, everything he hit went in the back of the net. Right. Yeah. He, he scored God knows how many goals he scored, but do you know what? And I've said this before, that year, that start of that season, everything could have been so different for Mickey Conroy, you know, because we used to, we trained really hard. We used to do loads of running. He was mad on fitness, Mickey Adams and Ian Bramford. And we had gone to Epsom Racecourse to do some running. Yes, we did run furlongs, right? So we'd gone there to do some running and we'd all gone and we Getting fit, July, and Mickey sat us down, and all the wrestling said picture, promotion, and all this, all that kind of stuff. And we're about to do the session, or we started the session, and Mickey Conroy has complained of a bad calf or something. So it's sure Mickey Adams weren't having his one. You're a disgrace. You slaughtered him, absolutely battered him. You know, you're soft, you're this, you're that. Absolutely. Well, I mean, caned him, caned him. This was about second day into pre-season. He sent him in. I'm sure Mickey had to walk back to the training ground. I might be wrong there, but he sent him in. Mickey Conroy, who's not the most confident of individuals, right? But a lovely man. Absolutely lovely man. Walked and he looked a broken man. And Mickey Adams was going to get rid of him. You could see he was going to get rid of him. Can't remember what happened. It's like a light switch. Something happened, maybe an injury or something. Mickey Conroy plays a game, gets fit, scores a goal, can't stop scoring. There you go. But anyway, I've never, heard, I've never heard that story. You wouldn't think it, would you? You wouldn't think it unless you was on the inside and knew it. Yeah, you wouldn't. But Mickey Conroy, right? You must probably look at Mickey Conroy and go, Scottish, confident, all the rest of it. Nah, mate. Mickey Conroy was the, one of the nicest blokes you'll ever meet, right? And he was just, he needed, he was a confidence man. He needed a lot of self-confidence. Yeah. And he worried about stuff. I don't worry about stuff, but he worried about a lot of stuff. But what a bloke. So, so the way you're just portraying him, it seems like that was probably the wrong way to manage him, but it, it seems to yeah. work. <laughs> don't get me, don't get me started on Mickey Adams and his man management style. Do not get me started on that. <laughs> <laughs> I said I don't know where we're going with this, Terry. I don't know. I don't know what road you're taking me down. Was it, was no, it a good man manager or a bad one? Don't don't let me get started. Mickey Mickey Adams is the worst man manager I've ever experienced in my life, in my working life. Let alone really? any other life, my working life, whether I worked at Sainsbury's or don't. But anyway, go on, next question. All right, next question. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's so wonderful hearing all your lovely memories. <laughs> you see, they're still vivid after, what, 20-odd years? See, all right. 
Right. Well, ironically, the next question actually reads, moving on, laugh out loud. (laughs) 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 Um, Let's try to lighten the mood by asking... By asking if there are any funny stories or pranks that that stand out. Do you know? Do you know what? I can't. I can't actually remember. There, there are, but do you know when somebody says to you, "Oh, give me a funny story," and it's only funny at the time, or it's only funny because you were there and it's a group of people. I mean, there there, there was this situation. You know, like Nick Cusack, tight ass, biggest tight ass going, Nick Cusack. And he never used to drive in. So he used to come in on the train. But because the train, the train used to put the toll off, so right by the training ground, he used to just get off, walk around the corner, he's at the training ground. So he would have to leave. Now, where was he coming in from? He's coming in from Wickham. I think he was coming in from Wickham at the time, or London, wherever. So he asked Mickey Adams, he said, so he could get the off-peak train, he wanted to change the training times. So rather than a start training at half ten, Nick said, what about we start at half eleven or eleven o'clock? Then I can get the off-peak train, which is cheaper. So Mickey Adams kind of looked at him and I said, you are, so you want to change the training times to match your training as serious as you like, went, yeah, yeah. So I think he asked all the, if I can remember rightly, he asked all the lads, lads, what do you reckon we change the training time? Some of the lads like Darren Freeman and Watto were coming from Brighton. And they were like, fucking you joking, eh? By the time we start at 11, half 11, by the time we finish, have something to eat, do whatever we're doing, we're in rush hour traffic. So that bombed it. So it's little stories like that where you just go, I don't believe that. There were funny stories, Dan, but to recall them and remember them, it would be beyond me and I'd have to lie. So I'm not going to lie because I don't lie. To be honest with you, I think I think when when the journey is just so happy and so enjoyable throughout, it probably is hard to specifically remember little things. I mean, that yeah. things, things probably stand out if the rest of the time was a bit shit. Shit. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think I think the biggest joke is just two words. It would have been Darren Freeman. Everything that was amusing was centred around him. And it's not like he tried his best to be funny, just some of the things he did. So Watto, Paul Watson and Chippy Carpenter, Rich Carpenter, lovely guys, them three, top, top lads. They would just go, you won't believe what's happened today. You won't believe what, and it, it was a constant. So Darren Freeman, if you say what funny things happen, you would just ask any squad member, you could go Darren Freeman. And I wouldn't be able to remember what, but it was him. Yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah, but I, yeah, I totally so see I that. I, no, I totally see that from, from my experience of talking <laughs> to him. Totally but get it. It's hard to get hold of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, so the next question is um, what was your favourite match? I do get asked that all the time. Yeah, yeah. And I always have. And I always have the same answer. Honestly, I 
this this guy that I'll give you the answer in a minute, but this guy asked me that month, a couple of years ago, and I said, and without a shadow, without not even, I wouldn't bat an eyelid. It's most probably one of the most enjoyable games of my entire career, right? And it's up there. It would be Carlisle away. I knew you were going to say it. I knew. You, you knew I was. You would. You would. And you know why, though? My reasons, Dan, are most probably different to others. Because I spent years, and I still do, watching Coventry. Um, and you go away. You go away from home. And you know what it's like. That, that buzz going away from home, looking in the away end, and the away end's packed, and thinking the home fans are thinking, God, they've brought loads. And that whole away day experience. Um, I look at that. In fact, that goes alongside when I played for Northampton and we had to win to stay in the league at Shrewsbury. But I hated that. But it sticks in my mind. But the Carlisle one sticks in my mind because I knew we were going to win that game on the Friday. I knew it. There was no way we were going to lose. We travelled up on the Friday morning, all up the M6. We stopped in Penrith and we trained Friday afternoon on Penrith's ground. So they're a non-league team. So we trained on their ground. And I'm training now. I'm looking around. And you just look around and you just go, flipping out. I'm not being funny. These ain't going to beat us tomorrow. And they had some top players, by the way, Carla. They mm. had... You know, they had Stevie Awood, they had um, Rory Delap, Warren Ashbinall, uh, what's his name now, um, Dean Wallin. They had Ponsworthy, they had some top, top players. On paper, they were miles better than us. So we trained in Penrith, finished, we have something to eat, go to the hotel. And to be fair, Mickey, that year, he ensured we had a hotel on a Friday night for journeys, which was great. We'd really done it well. Went to hotel. I roomed with Nick Cusack all the time. Ordered my biscuits, as I always did every night, stuffing my face with biscuits. We arrive at the ground, and why it sticks out in my mind is from the minute we started arriving at the ground, and we must have got there, I don't know, quarter past one, half one, something like that, you're seeing black and white everywhere. Now, as yeah. you will appreciate, it's not it's not an hour's jaunt up the road, by the way. No, no, <laughs> no, no it's I mean? not. It's certainly not. It's, it is, it is, at best, at best four hours. Yeah. You know, and that's non-stop. So, we, we knew people had gone up the night before. So, we arrive at the ground on there and you're getting changed and all the rest of it. Go out for the warm-up and as you come out of Carlisle, you get changed high up in the stand, come down some stairs, then you come pitch level, jump out, go out and pitch, look to the left, there's some Fulham fans dotted there, and I see them, and I'm thinking, oh, it's a fair turnout, it's not packed, it's not even half full. I'm thinking, fair play, come on, boys. And I knew, I just knew we'd win. I don't know why, I just knew we'd win. Oh, and they had Matt Janssen as well, I think. Kim, um, I think... We've, we get changed and then we line up to come and what you've got to do to come down the stairs at Carlisle you come down some stairs it's about I think it's about 10 stairs 
but the stairs are quite narrow, so you can't you can't actually have two people come down the stairs. It's it's a little bit tight to have two teams coming down, and yeah. we got on with their lads, and their lads were all right with us. So as we're coming down, Morgs led us down first. I must have been coming somewhere at the back. So we're all kind of intermingled. Morg stood at the bottom of the stairs. He turned round. I don't know if it was instinctive. I've never really spoke to him about this. He looked up so he could see all their players and our players. And I think their captain was Warren Aspinall or Stevie Awood. I can't remember. And he just looked up at all of us and he just went, come on, the boys. That was Terry Angus talking about his career at Fulham Part 1. In the second part, we continue to discuss his time at Fulham, but we move towards the end of his career as promotion is sealed and players are starting to move on as the Al-Fayed era begins. He also gives the lowdown on his relationship with Mickey Adams, which is somewhat different to what most of the players in that team might describe. Please follow us on Twitter for updates when the second part will be released. But until then, my name's Danny Boyer. Really hope you enjoyed it and thank you for listening.